The Eternity Podcast Network. EternityPodcasts.com.au Hello, I'm Jenny Salt, and welcome to Salt, a place where we'll enter into the lives of people and discover heartwarming, sometimes challenging, yet always distinctive gospel stories. had significant issues to wrestle with. Um, before I went to camp, I used to lie in bed um, imagining different ways I could kill my father. So it's probably not the most pleasant thing to be thinking about before you go to bed. My guest today is Phil Singline. Now you could say that Phil is your average Aussie bloke, a what you see is what you get type of person and a Baptist pastor to boot. Dig beneath the surface though, and you find someone who has seen the darker side of life in the suburbs of Sydney, and is convinced more than ever of the love of God and the power of just turning up. Welcome, Phil. Yeah, g'day, Jen. It's good to be here. Uh, Phil, you uh, live and work in Sydney. Um, has this always been your place of work and living? Have you always been in Sydney? Yeah, pretty much, um, except for three years when I was overseas as a child with my mum and dad. Um, that was in Papua New Guinea in the Highlands, and uh, dad was up there uh, teaching in a TAFE um, kind of arrangement. And, um, yeah, so three years of vague memories of mud men and uh, – Storms and showers and goats and cows and lots of fun. Wow. How old were you when you went to PNG? Uh, I was two and came back just before my fifth birthday. Okay. That's a pretty good time to enjoy mud men and storms and all that kind of thing. Yeah. I remember being terrified. Um, <laughs> and uh, one of my memories is being lost in a uh, in a, a troop of Sing Sing men, which were all dressed up in mud men, but also with the feathers and... Um, and just being surrounded by all these scary men and um, and being lost and terrified and then being found. And I don't have many memories, but that's one that's really strong. Wow. So apart from being in PNG, you grew up in Sydney. Whereabouts in Sydney did you grow up? Yeah, I grew up in Ryde. So Ryde um, was a fairly middle-class um, suburb back then, back in the 70s. Um, yeah, so mum and dad and I was the eldest of four kids. And uh, family life was interesting in that we had a lot of freedom, um, but it was also one where life had had a few, well, had a lot of challenges along the way. Um, so dad wasn't well, um, and uh, he had um, chronic headaches. Um, Mum probably didn't know how to deal with dad. Um, so there's a lot of conflict in the background of growing up. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. But it was it was a, a great time of freedom. I could go um, ride my bike for a couple of hours and then come home, and there was no real concerns or worries. Um, mm. Do you think that that freedom was just a part of the culture of the seventies, or do you think that was part of the culture of your family that they were happy for you to just to go out and then come back when you're ready? Yeah, I think it's both. Um, I think for um, for growing up. All of my mates were on their bikes and so there was a lot of freedom and we'd go down to 
Santa Rosa Park and, you know, get tadpoles. We'd um, uh, go build uh, bike jumps and all that sort of thing. So that was good. Um, but also I think mum struggled, um, yeah, struggled with her um, looking after all four kids and having us go out meant that she could do things like get dinner ready on time and all that sort of thing. So it was a convenient thing as well for us to um, just to rack off to, to go somewhere and have some fun and then come back. Mm. Was church a part of your family life as well? Yeah. So um, when I was born, I was a dedicated at Eastwood Baptist and at the behest of my grandmother, I was dedicated, I was christened. Um, at the Methodist Church at Lakeside at Eastwood. Right. So I covered, covered all the so angles. So you're covering, well, not all the angles. I mean, there are other angles you can There are cover. other angles, and, and I probably covered them later, or my mum and dad covered them later in life yes. as we moved around different churches. But, yeah, um, yeah going to church was really important. My mum had a very deep and personal faith, and so did my dad. Um, but because of their differences, they didn't relate very well together. Um so going to church was a really important part of every Sunday we'd go, we'd have to sit on the wooden pews nice and still. Um, there was Sunday school was before church and so we had a lot of time just sitting, <laughs> sitting being still and <laughs> us four kids just didn't really cope with that too well. Um, we were also dressed in polyester, which 1970s brown, <laughs> which probably is not the necessarily the no. most conducive thing to be sitting still in in church. And not, certainly not in summertime anyway. Not in summertime. I, I think at times I was well and truly cooked. Like the smell <laughs> uh, was fairly special, particularly when I was getting, you know, 11, 12. It was uh, yeah, yes. not necessarily the best. Why polyester? What is it oh, about polyester? It's the one thing that you can cook a chook in and your children. It's... Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's a particularly special. <laughs> so far from the polyester, are there fond memories of church? I remember having a couple of um, people take an interest um, in us as kids. Um, we used to memorise scripture and um, having to get um, go for the stickers. I remember my year five or year six Sunday school teacher um, took us all out ice skating um, at the end as a bit of a celebration. And she and um, she had a quite a vibrant faith, and that stood out to me, uh, particularly at a time when I was wrestling with who Jesus was, and I didn't want to be a Christian. I didn't want to follow my parents' footsteps. Um, I was very angry as I'd become very angry, particularly um, after my grandmother died. My dad was in hospital a lot. Um, there was a sense of a deep sense of anger and frustration with inside me that I couldn't find an answer to. And she was probably a, a shining light during that dark time mm. or the beginnings of the dark times. Um, Mum and Dad didn't necessarily uh, relate well to each other and um, and they would often play happy families on Sunday, uh, but um, things would fall apart, um, you know, after lunch and uh, or on Monday. And... That meant it became very difficult for me as a as a kid growing up to see what a a, a genuine faith was. What does it mean to be able to um, say you love Jesus and and yet be fighting all the time, or not fitting into church life, or not um, or not feeling that you belong anywhere? And that was probably my mum and dad's greatest struggle with themselves, but also with the broader church. And that had a great effect. Um, 
I know me personally, but I think also on, on my brother and my two sisters. Yeah. So given that disparity between the public life of a family uh, yeah. going to church and the private battles that occurred, mm. how did you become a Christian? Yeah. Um, so when I was in um, in high school, there was um, well, lots of challenges and I didn't really um, feel like, I, probably a bit like my mum, I didn't really feel like I fitted in anywhere. Um, there were difficulties at school there were difficulties at home there was i was a paper boy which meant that i was up at five o'clock um selling newspapers on lane cove road and um and um enjoying all of that freedom um but in that freedom i lacked security and uh, i lacked confidence and i think what i also did was i i um i didn't know um what it was to have a peace at all or a joy um, I saw religion or, or Christian faith as something that was good for the outside but not for the inside. Um, there was a guy, by this time we'd moved around lots of different churches and we were at Ride Baptist at the time and um, there was a, a, a bloke um, who, who saw my brother and I as being um, quite dislocated and full of pain and he had a quiet word to my mum and dad and said, you need to take them to a Christian camp, this campsite called Word of Life. And uh, it was there that um, I didn't want to go. Um, I was angry at dad. I didn't, um, so he had to um, physically throw me into the car. I tried to open the door and he gave me a couple of um, smacks to keep me uh, focused on <laughs> getting to this camp. So full of excitement and joy. <laughs> Yes, getting what ready. a way to go to camp. And uh, it was an hour bus trip and I said, I don't want to go here. Oh, what's going on? And so I said, look, I, I, had a, I hatched this plan. I'll tell everyone that I've been a Christian for three years and in that case they will leave me alone. I can have some fun <laughs> yes. and and they can just do whatever they're going to do. And um, at the campsite the, there was a guy there, my camp counsellor, who I'd, I can't remember his name, but he was a guy who was – he had muscles on his muscles and um, – and he said to have courage enough to say whether you're a Christian or not, as we had to introduce ourselves. And in the midst of that, um, uh, I thought, oh, look, I'll hatch my plan now. Here we go. And uh, before I shared, there was a guy across uh, my bunk and he said, look, my name is uh, blank and um, look, I don't want to be here. Um, I had a choice of either going to juvenile justice for the week or here. So this is the best of a bad lot. Um, not a Christian and uh, happy to be left alone. And I thought, oh, this, he's, he's telling my story. This is great. <laughs> um, but I kept with my plan. I said, no, nah, I've been a Christian for three years. And um, and in the midst of it, he became a Christian. He gave his life to Jesus and there was a significant change. He had this joy and he woke up in the morning and would read his Bible. And I could see that and I thought, this is strange. And um, during the camp, there was a song that was sung by the, in the tune of Edelweiss, and it went like this. went, grace of God reaching me, weak and sinful not caring, love of Christ cleansing me when he found me despairing. And that was at the heart of where I was up to as a 13, mm. four, nearly 14-year-old kid. Mm. And um, and the minister there, he, he gave a gospel call and, um, yeah, and I felt this um, this compulsion to come forward and, to ask Jesus to forgive me and to come and be my Lord and Saviour. And in the midst of that, I thought, oh, um, oh this is great. And um, and my brother came forward at the other end of the fire 
at the other. And so we both felt this so call. So there's a campfire. This campfire. Yeah. And we both felt this call of God on our lives. Um, but on the way back, I thought, oh, what have I done? You know? Oh, nothing much has changed anyway. But people said that for a kid who was used to scowling and being difficult and removing himself, um, people said that I started to smile. Mm. And that was a big change. Like I didn't notice that with him myself, mm. but people outside did. And um, so there was a couple of old blokes um, who took me aside and started reading the Bible with me and encouraging me and, and unpicking some of that tricky prickliness that was mm. part of my um, yeah part of my reactions to people. Um, and so that's how I sort of became a Christian and got started on the mm. on the journey. Mm. Did you have a sense that anger that you had within? Did that remain or did the anger go? It was still there. Um, I still had significant issues to wrestle with. Um, before I went to camp, I used to lie in bed um, imagining different ways I could kill my father. So it's probably not the most pleasant thing to be thinking about before mm -hmm. you go to bed. Does so that, that reflect something of your relationship with your dad yeah. that you would have that? Yes. Yeah. So we, he didn't understand me. I definitely didn't understand him. Mm. He didn't have, didn't seem to have a lot of patience for me and I didn't have any patience for him mm. um so we're highly fractured mm. um but you know the the thoughts of doing him in <laughs> disappeared <laughs> um, which is good that you know good. it's good to have that yes. not happen yes um but also um i seem to be more at peace with myself and more comfortable becoming more comfortable with the skin that i lived in mm. Mm. So you had others who were reading the Bible with you and uh, nurturing you in your understanding of the grace of God in your life. Yeah. Did that continue well beyond that camp? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, like Ride Baptist was an um, extraordinary place. Um, there was a great bunch of blokes who stood um, before me and they were ordinary guys and they just did fairly basic ordinary things, like things that we would see today as, you know, kind of normal if slightly a little bit off. So I remember um, being taught how to roll a cigarette by my youth, <laughs> youth group leader. And that's a skill that's really important. And uh, and, and so that's good, isn't that's it? something we teach at Bible college, Look, let I, me I, say. I, well, I know you're the, you're the lecturer of that, so it's important to <laughs> – it's about dexterity and um, – Making sure you don't spill it because it's very expensive, particularly these days. Sounds like youth group was uh, a huge and influential time for you. Yeah. Um, what were the youth group leaders like? Yeah, I think um, oh, they were terrific. Um, there was two blokes particularly, uh, Santino and uh, Warwick. Um, Warwick would be uh, would lead the Bible studies for us. So as as uh, young people, we'd go to his house and he'd put on Pink Floyd. Um, he would uh, often uh, go out the back and smoke. Um, but what they showed was a genuine faith. Um, I remember having um, a drink of alcohol with both of them, like having a beer with them as a 16-year-old. So these are the kind of things you wouldn't necessarily do in today's church, safe church environment. Um, but that was kind of normative. Um and they'd take us away and um, I remember one day, one time 
uh, Santino was driving a uh, his car and he said, oh, I need a smoke. And he said, just hold the wheel while I roll one. And <laughs> and so here I was a 16-year-old holding the wheel on a dirt road and the car was sort of sliding across the dirt road. And uh, and he'd, he'd rolled one and started smoking. He said, oh, it's a bit dangerous, isn't it, Phil? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm not feeling too comfortable with this. He goes, oh, no, I've got it now. And so he'd um, have a smoke in the car. Yes. Um, and again, it's probably not in the youth group, uh, you know, how to do youth group 101s. No. <laughs> but it showed a genuine, uh, a genuineness about their faith and an interest in me and that they could be normal and natural. Um, but there is something there that, um, that, that we can do things and we, mu- we make mistakes and that's okay. And we struggle with things and that's okay. But God's love and his grace doesn't change. And that was really helpful because, you know, I think as a teenager, you, you, you kind of pick up guilt and shame along the way and you pick up anger and, um, and fears. And if you don't know how to deal with them, they can become quite um, tricky. Mm. And um, destructive. They're destructive. Mm. And, the, um, and Warwick and Santino are terrific blokes. Um, were really instrumental in helping me find uh, a place where I know that I'm loved by the Lord Jesus. I know who I am under him. And we also had a, a, um, a preacher come who became our pastor, uh, Jim Gibson. And uh, he was terrific. He was frail and he had all sorts of idiosyncrasies. And, um, and he was a guy who didn't quite fit in. Um, but he loved Jesus and he preached the gospel and he preached about the grace of God every time he spoke. And that was invaluable, is unpicking mm. the, um, the damage of, um, of the past. Mm. Yeah. Mm. One of the things I love about my work at Sydney Missionary and Bible College is chatting with people who are thinking about going deeper in their study of God's word. For some, it's one subject at a time. For others, it is going full-time in their studies at SNBC. Whatever your preference, we have some amazing on- and off-campus hybrid study options now available. At the end of the podcast today, why don't you visit our website, smbc.edu.au, and see what makes SNBC tick. Now, I admit, I am a little biased, But SNBC is a great place to be stretched, to deepen your knowledge and love of God with the encouragement and support of the SNBC community. Now, Bible College, I'm sure at that point wasn't on your agenda, but you did end up going to Bible College. How did you, how did that happen? Yeah, yeah. Um, Well, the... Camp that I went to, Word of Life, is a um, I don't know how to describe it. It's a it's kind of a bit of a fundamental Bible college, so King James Version, dispensational, so the um, all the uh, the good stuff of that. <laughs> um, some people say it's less fun and more mental, um, but they had a really foundational um, um, focus on we need to understand what the Bible has to say, mm. and particularly what Jesus has done. And um, I was at at the camp. I was in year twelve. I didn't know what to do at the end of year twelve. Um, I had a sense that God was calling me to Bible college um, earlier to be a minister earlier, but 
um, but not to, um, not yet. Um, but I had this 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 feeling, and there was a an American preacher came out by the name of Paul Bubar. You gotta love American names, <laughs> and uh, and he said, you know, if, you know. <laughs> What will you give? Let's say Mormons give two years for, of their life for a lie. What will you give for the truth? That was his catchphrase. And that really got to me. I think, gosh, because I, I had a couple of mates who were Mormons and they were lunatics. And I thought, my gosh, yeah. He's, my, my mate John, he's off, he's off going to become an elder and carry on and he's the most immoral bloke you know. And, and his um, compulsion was based on this false teaching. And so, and I thought, what will I give for the truth? And I thought, look, I feel really uncertain about the future. I got accepted into Wollongong University to do teaching and I had a couple of mates from youth group who'd, who were leaders, people I admired, and when they went there, they abandoned their faith. And I, I feared that. I feared what that pressure could be. And so I took a year off as an 18-year-old and... Um, Wore a suit for most most of the time. Had to wear ties to dinner and had to learn how to seat a lady and all sorts of crazy things. So in this year off, what were you doing that made you wear a suit? Oh, it was part of the the uh, part of the standards, Jen. So of, it was part of the, of what of, of word of life. We had ah. to wear a suit and tie to dinner. Okay. So standards have slipped since then, <laughs> <laughs> but that's all right, you know. Like the um, but that was part of the culture and um. And so in that time, I got to really know the Bible. Um, I got filled with stories of people in aeroplanes sharing the gospel with the person sitting next to them and them coming becoming Christians. And, and those sort of stories became kind of part of normal Christian experience. Um, so so that was, it was an interesting time. It was a challenging time because I didn't, I didn't know because um, that became the framework of what I thought was true Christian faith. And they tied up a whole lot of legalism with what it meant to be a Christian. And it took a lot, a lot of years afterwards to unpick that legalism that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone and that God loves me even when I make mistakes. Um, and that was a really important lesson to learn post-word mm. of life. Mm. Um, but it was forming in that I... I could see the Bible. I could see it in my my mind's eye of of how it all connected and how it all fitted in in the characters and the wonder of who Jesus is and mm. His return and mm. those sort of things became enlivening for me as I was mm. um, as as an eighteen year old. Mm. So after that year, um, and actually a few years after that, quite a few years after that, you went to another Bible college. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, Sydney Missionary and Bible College. A, a much superior experience. <laughs> well, we won't, we won't go there, Phil. Uh, but what are some of your memories of that time? Um, well, it, the company that I worked for um, had just gone out of business. And, um, and it was one of those odd things at Word of Life when I was an 18-year-old. It was during when AIDS started and I thought, um, it was a big company called Business Aids, and I, I thought, isn't that funny? Wouldn't it be bad to work in that place? And I ended up working in that place, and that place eventually went out of business. And so, again, I was at an end to myself. I didn't know what to do. And um, my wife, Fiona, um, and her twin sister and her brother, Andrew, and um, people on the neighbouring farm, they were all, they'd all spent time at, at um, SMBC and 
And I thought, look, I just probably need a year off just to gather my thoughts, rest in what God wants for me and just see where he leads. And it was during that time the the stirrings of my heart that I thought I had as a 16-year-old kind of started bearing fruit. Um, and I felt God's call to, to look at pastoral ministry again um, and to commit to it, not just have it as a flight of fancy in my mind, but actually commit to studying and commit to learning. And the encouragement that I saw at, at college was that people were giving their lives not just for um, so overseas service, which was amazing, but for the standard, normal Christian life things. So I think there was there was about four or five people who went back to the workplace. Um, there were a few people that went to country in New South Wales or across Australia, and, um, and I was just amazed at that. Mm. And I thought, in my own heart and mind, I, I, I could sense God's call in my life again. Mm. And that was, it was lovely because, to be honest, I kind of lost that. I was reading the Bible occasionally. I was um, going to church. I was involved in different ministries, but my heart really wasn't in it. Mm. Um, and so it was good for me to hear God's call again. Mm. Yeah. So you did one year. One year. That, and then did that turn into? Two years. Two and then years. Three and years, then three years. Three years and got a Bachelor of Theology. And, um, and that was, that was um, yeah. Peas make degrees, Jen. Peas, that's one of the uh, little mottos that we have here, peas make we degrees. Do. So you do have a Bachelor of Theology mm. and that did that take you into uh, vocational ministry? It did. Um, at the end of the year, my wife and I had spent seven years in a Chinese church and I thought that our natural fit would be to go back to a Chinese church. I, th- I think I thought within myself quite arrogantly, oh, I understand I can't believe I, I thought this, but I understand uh, Chinese people. Even though neither one of you were Chinese. <laughs> was, yeah, not, not even not even close to Chinese. I love Chinese food, but and I loved my seven years at, at uh, Northern District's Chinese Church. Mm. Um, and uh, it was a resounding no. Like it was um, – I applied for a few positions and God really made it clear that this was not where he wanted me to go. And um, – and then I had a phone call from Dean Rerakura from um, Cameltown Baptist. And uh, he said, I should come down. Your name's been presented to someone that we should talk to about a pastoral uh, role. And um, so I went down to uh, Campbelltown. My uncle had attended that church and, um, and I'd been there a few times. And it was a lively church that had its heart set on the gospel. And, um, and I was waiting for the big, you know, sign in the sky saying this is it Phil and it didn't really happen but I had a strong sense of conviction that this is where God wanted me to be and Fiona to be. So you were a pastor in Campbelltown which led to you uh, being pastor of a church in Claymore yeah called Westside Baptist. Yes. How did that happen? Yeah so Westside was a congregation a church plant of Campbelltown Baptist um some, I think it was 28 years previously, the government, funnily enough, um, as they're putting housing commission suburbs around Campbelltown, um, the department of the person who was in charge of the planning process in the government, a labour man, he said, I'm not a Christian, but I see that wherever um, churches are, people tend to do better. And, um, and so he invited the church to plant, um, to start a church in three areas. And, um, 
and Camp- and Claymore, Westside Baptist, was one of them. Hmm. So there was Northside Baptist, which was in Minto. There was Southside, which was in Ambervale. And there was Westside, which was in, um, yeah, in Claymore. In Claymore. And tell us, um, for those who are not familiar with Claymore, how would you describe the suburb of Claymore? Yeah, like Clay- Claymore. I-, I love Claymore to bits. It's an amazing place. But like most suburbs, there's two faces. There's a, a face which um, is dark. And so the darkness of the suburb is that it, it is a housing commission area. It's a very young suburb. So the average age of people in the suburb is 20. So the national average is 37 or 38. Um, literacy is poor. It's mixed migrant groups. So there's a lot of Pacific Islanders. Um, there's a number of refugees. Um, when I started there, there were 150 people from Arabic background. Um, there were refugees from uh, Eritrea, from Sudan, um, from South America. Um, there were people from um, sort of standard white. Um, there was a high percentage of um, of Aboriginal people too. And in the midst of it, there was also a high degree of dysfunction. So, um, so drugs and alcohol, domestic violence, um, confusion, um, strange um, ways of relating to each other. Um, gossip became a bit of a currency in Claymore. So if you know something about someone, um, then that gives you some relational power over them. Um, and so that's kind of the dark side. So people were always falling out of each other with each other, um, fights. Um, you'd see women going at it with each other, um, men going at it with each other, as in, um, it was just a bit like high school, really, you know, mm. that people go to the, you know, the blokes used to go to the bus stop to, to have a punch on or the girls used to go behind the toilets and have a punch on, you think. And when I first got there, I thought, my gosh, this is just like a playground. Mm. It's a crazy place. Um, and I felt really out of my depth. I thought the only thing I've got is Jesus. Like I used to drink a little bit, you know, when I was 16 and 17. Like I, used to, I was the bloke in, my, in our circle who looked old enough to go to the bottle shop to buy the grog, <laughs> you know, and um, – and I don't think they worried too much about that, to be honest. Um, but it wasn't consuming me. Um, I never really smoked drugs. I didn't smoke drugs. I didn't take drugs. Um, I wasn't involved in any strange sexual practices. And yet, all of a sudden, I was in, swimming in a in a sea where this was just everywhere, and I felt utterly um, incapable of um, of helping. I, all I had was Jesus. And then as I'd pray and, and wrestle with with things, I thought, but that's more than enough. Um, I don't need anything more than Jesus. I need wisdom, but I need wisdom with Jesus. I want to tell you about another great podcast It's called The Word on the Street with Anna Ware. Anna designs 10-minute Bible studies for you and your kids that you can do literally anywhere, in the car, in your home, and they're full of great questions, helpful answers, and great reflections on the Bible. If you'd like to subscribe to this and other great podcasts, go to eternitypodcasts.com. Thank you.
And so I'd pray and I'd ask God, Lord, please, you know, where do you want me to go? Because Claymore is a suburb of of three and a half thousand people and the need is so great everywhere. And um, I had a strong compulsion that God was leading me to these two streets. And um, and I thought it was, a, it was an odd thing, but I felt really compelled to that. Um, and there was a lady in there some old lady and she rededicated her life to Jesus um, she had a lot of um, uh, of pain um, because the Samoan church that she was involved with was highly legalistic and um, part of parenting growing up for her was don't you ever bring shame on our family and um, and she did um, and so she came to faith and there was a lady um, who came to faith, and uh, she was the mother of six children, uh, all by one of them have addiction issues, significant addiction issues, and um, her partner at the time um, was f heavily involved, not just with um, the taking of drugs and alcohol, but also the selling. And um, and he he became a bit of a bit of a character. But he, he also became a champion for me and my ministry in the Claymore community without ever becoming a, a Christian. That's interesting that a drug dealer would become a champion of a Baptist pastor. Why do you think that is? I, I think he didn't understand. He didn't. He had no. He couldn't understand me when I first met him. But he just saw me keeping turning up um, when I was. Um, working in the company uh, business aids, uh, there was an old bloke there and he said, Phil, the secret to life is turning up and because um, you never miss out. And I thought, that's that's a good thing for ministry. If you keep turning up, you're not going to miss out on what God's doing. And, and it's a, a great sign of faithfulness that if things of the gospel are true, then by presenting them again and again, what it means is it, it proves to some degree the faithfulness of God. And so I used to just keep turning up. I just popped in and and I'd often say, when I do, I love door knocking. And one of the hmm. questions that I would ask people, I'd say my, my pattern of talk would be, g'day, my name's Phil, I'm the local pastor. Um, and I'm just popping in to say g'day to people and getting to know them. And um, more often than not, people would open the door and would have a coffee, generally a very bad coffee, um, but they would tell me their story. And so I'd do this with... Um, this guy and um, and he was it was quite I think it disarmed him um, because I had no real agenda like I wasn't trying to um, to put something over him I wasn't gossiping or looking to undermine him I was just genuinely interested and over a period of a year he just told me everything astonishing things frightening things uh, things things that I wish I didn't hear and I think oh gosh that that won't ever leave my brain. Um, and, um, and all around Claymore, people got to know, um, something of Jesus in the midst of this one relationship. Yeah. And so he would often ref, um, refer people to me and ask me to visit such and such, um, because they're doing it tough. And so I'd be able to meet with them, pray with them and read the Bible with them. And, um, and it was a great privilege. And so within the first sort of three years of ministry, um, I had all these connections within the Claymore community that weren't 
necessarily from me, but these were God using this guy to um, to direct me to people. It's interesting, Phil, that you say that you love door knocking because a lot of people don't and that people are very quick to welcome you in, which a lot of the time people are not. Have you ever been rebuffed at the door when you've knocked on someone's door? Yeah, look, um, people f- find that someone asking to um, to learn about their story um, is quite disarming. And so people will often go, oh, I, I suppose so. And so they'll let me in and I'll ask I'll ask the question. So tell, tell me something about your story. Um, where did you grow up? Where were you before Claymore? And, um, and they'll tell me, they'll tell me just about anything and everything. Like I've heard stories about, oh my gosh, um, you know, the hardship and pain of people's lives and, um, and the good stuff as well. Um, and I've only, like, my memory may be a little bit off here, but I think I've only ever been knocked back once. And that was a lady who was part of our church. And, um, and she was the only one I can remember who's actually told me to, to get lost. And she said um, later, I was so sorry, I was uh, mixing up my speed. And um, so she was on drugs and, um, and she, was, she felt guilty and shamed that I was there to find out more. And, and I said to her, I was only, I only knocked on your door because I was praying for you the other day and you came to mind and I thought I should find out what was actually happening for you. And, um, and so that was, yeah. So it's only been once, Jen, that I've ever mm. been really – I really remember being knocked back. But um, It's just interesting that you were knocked back because she was preparing speed Yeah, yeah. Uh, and she's part of your church. That's something that a lot of people may not be able to say about their churches, but I love the fact that she actually came to you afterwards and said that, that here's the reason why. One of the things I tell people, I said, you're better off being stoned and um, confused or coming down at church where you feel loved than staying at home feeling guilt and shame. Mm, wow. It's interesting with your relationship with the drug dealer. Yeah. And uh, it seems to me that as much as he also he refers people to you and, and vice versa, he's also someone who is looking for opportunities for you in surprising places. Do you want to tell us about one example of that? Yeah, there's, um, I really like this about the guy. Um, there's a local uh, brothel... Um, it's, it's fairly notorious, um, and um, and he goes there regularly, not to participate, but just to hang out. And um, and he was um, overwhelmed at what the girls were sharing with him, and he thought, "Well, look, Phil needs to hear this." And so um, he, he rang me up and said, "Oh, Phil, how do you feel about going to such and such a place?" And I went, "Oh, look, there's no there's no place the gospel can't go." And so I asked the wife of one of the ladies, sorry, one, a wife of the elder of our church, um, to whether if this opportunity comes about, would she go with me? And um, and uh, she said, oh, but after the colour came back to her face, she said, I suppose I'd have to, wouldn't I? And, and I said, yes, yes, you do. <laughs> this is compulsory fun if it happens. And I said, I don't think it will, but like, and um, I'm not sure what will happen. And um, and. Uh, the guy rang up and said, oh, look, I've, I've had second thoughts because it's probably not a good look for you to walk into that place. And I remember saying to him, I said, you know, there's no place where Jesus' love doesn't belong. And um, and and he's, yeah, and that's kind of where that story ended. I didn't get to go. And I, 
um, and there are a lot of people who were very thankful that I didn't go. Mm. Um, but it's interesting that he, in the end, withdrew the offer for the sake of your reputation. Yeah. That is remarkable. Uh, he hasn't, at this point, shown any interest in the gospel himself, but he can see the benefit of your love and your testimony of the grace of God in the lives of others to the point where he's referring people to you and you to them. Yeah. That's remarkable. Yeah. It is. It's, and it's a work of God's grace. Um, so he would see himself as a person of faith. Um, he, many years before I met him, had 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 made a decision to follow Islam and Allah um, uh, and that didn't seem to bear any fruit in his life naturally. Um, but he's got a um, an idea of God but also a feeling that he's a long way away from him. Mm. Inevitably, uh, living and uh, mixing and being with people with significant challenges mm. uh, is going to have an impact on you. Yeah. And that has included uh, burnout and um, stress leave. And, and yet, Phil, you're still there. You're still alongside your family, uh, living and loving this community. Why? Um, I generally love the people and I love the work. I love the, I love seeing the amazing power of God's gospel in the Lord Jesus. Um, there's a guy who's a Muslim bloke. Um, 13, I've known him for 13 and a half years. Um, he's just recently rang me up in tears saying, please, can we meet? My life is a mess and I don't know where to go. And you think, right, that's astonishing because this guy used to run away from me. So I'd turn up and he would make an excuse and disappear uh, at funerals. He would see me and walk the other way. And and yet that's part of God's grace in bringing him. And so praying for him with this guy for 13 and a half years and at different times and, and seeing his anger and his violence and his um, own drug use and abuse, um, seeing that God's work is still happening. Um, there's another person who's uh, transitioning from a male to a female and, um, and there's a lady in Claymore who said that they want to read the Bible. And you think that's just God's grace mm. at work. Mm. It's not me. It's just turning up. Mm. Um, and it's one of the great privileges of of life, not just in Claymore, but I think the Christian life mm. is that when we have open hands and a willingness to step into other people's lives, they're more than willing to open up. And um, and I think that's what keeps me me there, seeing God at work and seeing the the changes that God brings about in people's lives. Um, it's just an astonishing uh, privilege. Phil, it's been so encouraging to hear the way that God is working out his purposes in and through you. We thank you so much for sharing your story today. No worries. Thanks, Jim. I hope you've enjoyed being part of the conversation with Phil today and importantly, been encouraged to be salt and light to those around you. Next episode... We'll meet someone who has gone through cancer, chronic fatigue, and reached calm. We'll see you then.
Salt is hosted by me, Jenny Salt, and produced by Mark Hadley. Editing by Hadley Inc. For all show notes and more episodes, head to smbc.edu.au forward slash salt. Salt is a Sydney Missionary and Bible College podcast and part of the Eternity Podcast Network, an audio collection showcasing the seriously good news of faith today. Thanks for making Salt possible.